0: Welcome to Advancing Our Church, a Changing Our World podcast about Catholic stewardship, leadership, and advancement. I'm Jim Friend. Welcome back, everyone. We have another great show for you today. We're going to be talking about the new book, The Generosity Crisis, and the case for making a radical connection with your donors. Anyone who is working in fundraising today knows how difficult it is to retain donors. There's so much competition out there for the dollar that we cannot continue to do things the way we always have. Our discussion today will delve into what this new book reveals about how the nature and language of philanthropy are changing and what can be done about it. This conversation is a must for anyone who is trying to convince their leadership that direct mail fundraising and online fundraising alone is not sustainable. I'm glad you're with us today because we are making the case that fundraisers need to create those radical connections with their donors to solve this generosity crisis. And so, without further ado, let's get to work. I am here with two authors of the book, The Generosity Crisis, The Case for Radical Connection to Solve Humanity's Greatest Challenges. And we're here with Nathan Chappelle and our own Brian Crimmins. Nathan, Brian, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it's great to be here. And I just had a smile when you said the word authors because it's still a new thing that we're trying
2: on. So for uh,
1: Brian and I, it's uh,
2: New Frontiers. It's very exciting. I, Nathan, I felt the exact same thing. I, I I noticed both you and I chuckled and smiled. Thanks, Jim, for putting that tag on there for us. It's good. Nice.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. It's it's forever going to be a part of your your title now. That's awesome. Well, let me uh, just for the sake of our audience, just provide a little introduction to both Brian and Nathan before we get started with our conversation about the book. So we'll start with Brian. Brian Crimmins is the Chief Executive Officer of Changing Our World. Brian is responsible for the overall management, success, and growth of our firm, and has personally provided counsel to. Clients Science, such as the Diocese of Rockville Center, the Catholic Community Foundation of Long Island, the Global Solidarity Fund, Diocese of Dallas, Roman Catholic Foundation of Eastern Missouri, St. John's University, his alma mater, the Pontifical North American College in Rome, the Catholic Alumni Partnership, and the Diocese of Brooklyn, just to name a few. Brian oversees all aspects of changing our world's service lines, including nonprofit services, corporate research and analytics, and communications. Brian has extensive experience building and managing the implementation of strategic initiatives that enables nonprofits and corporations to achieve their philanthropic goals. Brian is often called upon to speak at conferences and workshops regarding the philanthropic landscape and current trends in philanthropy and has mentored students from Notre Dame's Mendoza College of Business. He serves on the board of Shamanad High School and is vice chair of the board of the Institute for Catholic Schools at St. John's University. Brian holds a bachelor of science degree from St. John's University and an MBA in marketing management from St. John's Tobin School of Business. Welcome again, Brian. Thanks, Jim. And Nathan Chappelle is a thought leader, public speaker, and writer, and one of the world's foremost experts on the intersection between artificial intelligence and philanthropy. Nathan serves as Senior Vice President of DonorSearch, leading the research and development efforts dedicated to leveraging artificial intelligence to help nonprofits harness actionable insights from big data. In 2018, Nathan presented the first TEDx talk on the topic of artificial intelligence and the future of generosity. In 2019, Nathan was listed as one of the top 100 influencers in philanthropy, and in 2021, Nathan founded Fundraising.ai as a member-centric collaboration with a focus on data ethics, data equality, privacy and security, and sustainability. Nathan holds a master's in nonprofit administration from the University of Notre Dame an MBA from the University of Redlands, a certificate in international economics from the University of Cambridge, and a certificate in artificial intelligence from MIT. Welcome again, Nathan. And Nathan, uh, you and I were recently together at the International Catholic Stewardship Conference in Anaheim, where you presented this book to I think a very eager group of development professionals and church leaders, which I think was very well received. And we got some great reviews from that workshop. So I'm excited to, to dive into this book. I, I had the the privilege of uh, getting a preview of it and reading through it and was just really intrigued by the readability of it. It was a very easy read and it really laid out the problem of the generosity crisis. So why don't we get started maybe with our conversation and, and this really could go to maybe either one or both of you on kind of what led you down down the rabbit hole of discovering that there was a generosity crisis in the work that we do.
2: Yeah, I'll I'll get us started, uh, Jim. And, um, you know, certainly I'll let Nathan tell his version of the story or maybe, you know, put some truth into what I'm going to (laughs) say. But when when Nathan and I first met, gosh, you know, years ago now, when when I had the pleasure of working with him at uh, City of Hope, I think from my perspective, and I would love to get his reaction to this, you know, I felt like when I met him we had just had very similar views on, on the world and on the sector that we both are both in, obviously. And when you have that with somebody, when you have that sort of connection, the, the lines of sort of the conversations would go from what was on the agenda for the meeting and the important work that we were doing for City of Hope. But I often found ourselves talking about many other things about ha- happening around the sector. And it was one of those relationships and conversations that just continued, you know, over year, months and, and years. And I'm sure a joke or two is made. We should probably put our heads together and write a book because we we were both concerned about what we saw that was happening with our sector, particularly the, the generosity crisis, the declining giving, and you know, on a certain degree, I, I personally, I'll speak for myself, didn't necessarily feel like enough was being talked about about it or it was being it was more it was mainstreamed you know it's you know what's that old expression sometimes you first have to admit you have a problem before you can get on to dealing with the solutions and so i felt like we needed to do something put our heads together and i think nathan and i come at our sector and at the problem of the generosity crisis from two different worlds but it's a very holistic world when we put our thoughts together and so i think it was summer spring late spring early summer of last year where we were both on a phone call and just decided to let's just do this we've been talking about it let's Jump into the deep end of the pool and start to figure out what it means to even write a book, which this was an entirely new process for me.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's that's it's very true. I, when Brian and I first met years ago, I mean, there was just uh, you know, that you there's sometimes you meet someone and it just clicks and you're like, we're gonna be friends. Like I like the way you think and and we riff off each other. And I mean, t- to be honest, like truthfully, I I think for me, I was hoping someone else would write this book for years, you know. And and we were talking about this type of thing, you know, within nonprofits that we're working in or consulting with. And it was this idea that every year, you know, you're trying to hit a, an annual fundraising goal, but from a shrinking pool of donors and With a background in business and economics, I started looking at this in 2012 after the giving pledge was signed and just fascinated by like, what's the effect of that going to be? Whether, you know, the giving pledge, you know, creates a new national conversation that really hadn't existed since Rockefeller and Carnegie, but now is revitalized in our modern society and it'll either inspire lots more people to give because it just, it's more mainstream or it will have the opposite effect where it becomes essentially this crowding out effect where, you know, people think, well, others are on the scene. I don't, my gift is not as important. And started looking at that uh, 10 years ago. And and again, like, I think Brian and I talked about this so many times and we're just thinking, someone's going to write about this. And I remember being in New York with Brian at one point, I literally was on a panel and I said, someone has to write this book to the audience, not expecting that it would be us. I think lo and behold, because of our commitment to the industry. And I think just that heart of like wanting to advance this conversation, it was like, okay, it's time. I think it was literally like, I think we probably at a point cried uncle and we're like, okay, someone has to do it. No one else is stepping up. We better do it.
0: Well, and you both bring such great perspectives from your own area of expertise. I mean, you both have a a background in nonprofits and expertise in nonprofit, but I think from the both the AI and the fundraising application perspective really brings all the knowledge I think that someone would need or, or background to really break open this topic. So let's talk a little bit about how uh, just defining this problem. And, and and the first part of your book really does a great job of that. And not just from talking about some of the data that you've seen, but also about what's out in the media. For example, you mentioned that, you know, Elon Musk says that his company is now stewardship or philanthropic. Tell us a little bit about what you're seeing in the media and how that really impacts the numbers that you're seeing.
2: I'll start there, Jim, because I, you know, in the sense that with Elon Musk referring to his companies as philanthropy is because of you know for the for the good of humankind i think there's some well intentioned in, in that statement right. but i also think <laughs> there might be a bit more of the the marketing bend to it versus uh you know a Pat- patagon the news on patagonia more recently which feels more authentic and to who they are but but i think they par- they play into a bit of Potentially the, the confusion, I think that's out there that and as we all know, being fundraisers, if there's any tension, if there's any uh, extra hurdle that t- towards giving it's human nature, people aren't going to necessarily go through with that act uh, and it's not just a giving act it's a you know it could be a purchasing act so what, what when you have people and companies and uh making statements like Elon Musk or companies making moves like Patagonia we do think it's one of the one of the factors of you know a bit of uh well it seems like they'll take care of that companies have lots of assets they have lots of dollars um as we all know being fundraisers they still make up one of the smaller portions of the the giving pie but they have other assets to bring to the table their employees their products etc I think when you meld that with the fact that you can invest in ESG-type funds now, you can put your money to, to good use, if you put that word, could do good in, in quotes. For me, it felt like the menu of ways to be generous have grown over the last 5, 10, 15 years, where 25 years ago, if you wanted to have an impact, you wrote a, you know, a check to a nonprofit and you you know, you know put a lot of trust in them to do great work. And in fact, one of our endorsers, Arthur Brooks, a phenomenal Harvard professor, multiple time New York Times bestseller, he was kind enough to, as I said, give us an endorsement. His book in 2006, Who Really Cares, was like a tipping point moment because at that point in time, and he wrote about it, uh, three fourths, 75% of Americans. Are given to charity, and the m- most recent information showing that that number is now forty-nine point six, less than half. And this is where Nathan, doing his analysis, was just—you know—as we were writing this book, and he was doing his own research, and he hit me with the, the, the comment of, "Do you realize if we stay on this trend, philanthropy will cease to exist in forty-nine years?" It's—you start to realize that. There's something going on here that needs to be explored and needs to be understood.
1: Yeah, I'll I'll only add to that is there is a lot of confusion. I think for a lot of people, that definition of philanthropy is changing. You know, what does it mean? Does it mean buying responsibly or does it mean helping a neighbor or does it mean giving to a traditional charity? And so we really, you know, talk a lot about that. It's interesting, though, from a public perspective, generosity is all around us. And I think we take so much of it for granted. But this idea of the generosity crisis is, is really something that a lot of people don't want to talk about. Not, not only you know out in the world, most people don't even think about generosity, but the, even the 49.6% that give, they don't tend to think about what does it look like in a world that's less generous? Like, what are the implications of that? Like, how is my life going to be different? And you know, how is just civic engagement going to look? I happened to just look yesterday, the most viewed post that I made on LinkedIn last year with like 36,000 views was the one about Elon Musk claiming that all these companies and I think I posted, you know, if I buy a Tesla, does it make me a philanthropist? And I mean, it, and by a far margin, it was the most viewed post of any post I had made. And so it shows that there is this confusion, there's an interest in learning more. And I think that really comes down to kind of premise number one of the book to your point, Jim, of like, just kind of laying out the facts, like at the at, at there's a point where people have been talking around this issue for so long, that there just needs to be, I, I joke that, you don't write a book called the generosity crisis to make friends. You know, it's not, you know, I don't think it's going to end up in many people's Christmas wish list. but at the same time, like you need to hit the bull in the head. Like someone needs to just say, this is what it is. Let's level set. Let's start the conversation, which is what we, we hope to do kind of to demonstrate the gravity of like, to Brian's point with no change to this trajectory, you know, we're going to live in a world in our lifetime that, or our kid's lifetime for sure that doesn't look like our world now. And it's, uh, I think we will, if we take generosity for granted now, we're really gonna miss it later on.
0: You both make great points. And, and Nathan, just to pick up on, on the tail end of what you're saying there. So most uh, all nonprofits work with different generations of donors, different levels of donors. And so are we seeing this trend as something that is prevalent with millennials with a particular generation or do the boomers see or the Gen Xers see gener- generosity in the same way that millennials or Gen Xers do or, or rather millennials or Gen Z do? Well, and
1: I, I can start with this, but, you know, there you have to look at that through different lenses, you know, sure. in, in terms of the largest drop-off in terms of individuals not giving to traditional charities, it is millennials. And, and at this point, there's a group called the Generosity Commission, and that's really studying this. And you have to really look at the underlying conditions of why, you know, if you conversely look at boomers who were uh, largely grew up in a religious environment, were taught and modeled the virtues of giving and the responsibility of giving back that we weren't here just to consume, but that we were going to leave a legacy. A lot of that is, as there's been a decrease in just percentage of people, generosity is, is it may be inherent, you know, as humans, but it's it's largely modeled. It needs to be shown to us. And because we know this, that paradox of generosity is the more we give, the more we get back. But if no one teaches you that to begin with, then how do you know? You just tend to take things for granted. So there is a big aspect of the aging out of the more traditionally, from a traditional charitable giving kind of perspective, those individuals um, have not passed it on as as well as prior generations have.
2: I, I want to pick up on the point you made just to double down on it. You know, Nathan and I, at one point, we met for once a week, I think for like a year and a half writing this book, We're looking at a lot of the data, the first part of the book, Jim, and, and really unpacking it And that. And, and as the point he made there about the disassociation of religion with religion, as that as that number continues to go down, he and I I remember one night having a conversation about what will replace that. The, by that we mean the the traditional, the habit forming, the modeling that Nathan was referring to. And and I I still I'm like that's a scary thought, you know, because of how it was. I know personally for me it was a very real thing. It was real with my own family, with our, with our number of parishes, the parishes that we've lived in throughout our our lifetime. And I loved how Nathan said it. It's like you know inherent in our religion is the Concept of not just consuming, but participating and supporting and stewardship and 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 giving to those who are less fortunate. And when you take that out, what replaces that? What replaces that modeling? And I know at one point I don't remember Nathan, you and I were thinking about even writing a chapter about what what could replace it. But and the answer is we it ended up not becoming a part of the book. We had a really hard time figuring out on mass on the scale that religion had historically done. The modeling, the teaching, the traditional tradition building of generosity. I remember you that one night we were talking about the the Peace Corps, like, you know, something like the Peace Corps that inspires what the civic responsibility, what and we don't love to add that to part of the conversation we're hoping to spark with our book, because there is probably no one answer the way that the faith based and religion uh, provided for generations before us and our generations that came before us you
0: look at Catholic charities which I believe at one point maybe still is the largest social service agency in the United States and the generosity that comes from Catholics and even non-catholics all over the world to to support that that work where would we be without an organization like that and you kind of you both kind of allude to that a little bit in your book where would we be what will society look like if we continue on this trend
2: yeah I mean I don't think most people realize that the nonprofit sector and we talk about this in pretty good detail but the size of the 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 nonprofit sector, the number of jobs that are provided, the economy that it provides—you know—we talk in the book about Nathan's alma mater, Notre Dame, and the impact it has on that local community. Jim, I know, and as friends of mine who don't even know what I do for a living, <laughs> when they've been asking me about what I what the book's about, and I've tr- I've tried to figure out how to come at this from them, and I often find myself starting with this very thing, which is, do you even understand how this how much of your life is. In coming into touch points with a nonprofit, whether it be education, healthcare, whatever it really like, whatever it might be, and the impact of the that term, that chapter that we have in the book about being a little bit dramatic about the woman who's about to give birth and goes to the hospital and the doors are shut, you know right. those type of things. I, I think it's a really. I think the context of that, the impact that the nonprofits in this country have and around the world, the size of it, the the, the how important it is. To your comment about Catholic charities. I felt like we needed to write a chapter about that because we don't understand that. I think that's an important contextual comment and data to understand to then start to really understand how important it is to that we try to figure out what's going on with the generosity crisis. Yeah,
0: without a doubt. Nathan, how does your work or how has your work with artificial intelligence helped kind of inform you in as you wrote this book and on the generosity crisis and maybe even on some of the solutions to it?
1: Yeah, I mean, it, you know, the the work in AI almost ended up being a means to an end. Honestly, uh, as a result of kind of not knowing at the time what it was called or what was happening, but really as a result of this idea that less people were giving. So I was running a, a fairly large fundraising program, and you know, every year, you know, we had new goals to raise more money. You know, and it and honestly, there were I won't I won't name names, but there were people on my team that would say, well, we just need to build a better mousetrap, and and so this idea of like like just trying to get more and, you know, more and more donors and just trying to convert them at any cost was essentially the, the way. And I don't think it, it just never really settled well with me. You know, I, I was in the private sector 20 plus years ago before I got in the nonprofit sector and always been kind of an early adopter and innovator. And I looked at how the private sector was using AI to really create personalization at scale. Like, all about like me being an individual consumer of a or potential consumer of a product versus just a white male, you know, Where historically, you know, even if you were segmented, you know, very broadly, but now it's like, I am Nathan Chappelle that lives here that has two kids that has a dog and, and that data is being used like that, you know, in very intentionally. And so the idea of really using AI was to get out of this idea of just stereotyping people into one or two buckets you know, donor or non-donor or good or bad, but as an individual to say, you know, this person is connected to our organization in a deep way or not. And then what are the things that we could do to help increase that or foster that relationship? And so, you know, this has been a long journey. It's been since 2017 of focused in, focused on using machine learning and deep learning to really, at this point, quantify connection of people to an organization. So an N of one, you know, absolute precision to one person and their relationship to an organization. Technologically, it's one of the only, going back to, you know, how do we reverse this crisis? It's one of the things that has to occur, that nonprofits have to start stop stereotyping people and start using data that they can uh, manage or they can purchase to add to that and, and really get to know people in a more intimate way. And the backdrop of all this is, is what AI has shown us is that more is not better. The idea, you know, where historically nonprofits think the world is their oyster, and if you could get a dollar from every person in America, you, all your problems would be solved. Well, as Brian said, you know, only 49.6% of Americans now give. I mean, it's a 16% decline since 2000. So it's pretty significant. So you have to first acknowledge that the world is not your oyster, but then even more, you know, who actually cares enough about your organization, who has enough commonalities with your organization that they're a potential donor, which is a very, very small number compared to the world in general. And so AI has allowed us to look deep and essentially... You know, I, while while there's this generosity crisis, we know more about what motivates giving than we've ever had before in history through our our deep learning to really understand the the levers and and what people look like when you know before they make a gift or when they're going to make a, a repeat gift. So still very much in its infancy from a, from a societal perspective, but light years from where we were even five years ago in in understanding this.
2: And and Jim, if I could piggyback on that, Nathan used the word compet- the connection, and I been talking about as a competition for connection you know one of the things i learned from nathan early on too was not only all the things he just said but how important it is to realize as a nonprofit that in any given day a donor to you or a supporter of yours or somebody in your network is either moving closer to you or further away you know like because of their own interactions with you or quite frankly their interactions with others and you know this is where i thought the work that we do at general on the on the company side of things was really fascinating because as more and more companies were beginning to realize that values and, and being a good company and to you know making really good products that are good for the environment was smart business their marketing and their communications efforts started uh, I I talked about in the book of the, they started sounding like nonprofits if you take a step back i mean some of them very mission oriented very such that I, you know i think we're getting to a point where some people might actually confuse as i think we talked about it i know we, we did yeah. in the book you know whether or not Ben Ben and Jerry's who, which is a phenomenal company is actually a company or a nonprofit um you know there's a blurring of the lines there and i go back to that comment i made earlier on in the beginning which is with people have to stop and think you know they the giving you know the, you doesn't follow. But I also think the bigger point there is just that every nonprofit that we were have had the pleasure and the honor of working with. I had not appreciated it until I went through this work of over the last year and a half with Nathan to to put in the context that they could be a phenomenal, and most of them are organizations. But you got to realize that people are living in a world where more information, more data is coming at them and changing their perceptions, their thoughts of an organization, whether they realize it even or not. And and that I think I think is partly why less people are are engaging in the traditional act of philanthropy. I think because they can get, I believe, the same physical good feelings of supporting. Yeah a nonprofit if I buy from the right company or if I do some other things, hence the comment I made about the menu, to do good and to be generous. And I just think nonprofits have not yet, I know I didn't, and I think a lot of others hadn't really fully understood that, that the world we're living in is moving very, very quickly around them.
0: You, you, you picked up on, on where I was headed next, Brian, in, you know, when I when you look at the, uh, the title, we talk about the generosity crisis, but in the second half of the title, you start to allude a little bit to what the solution might be, and, and that's creating those radical connections. And I I look at my own mailbox, and over the course of a month, I'll receive fifty solicitations from different <laughs> charities that some we've given to and some we've never given to, but they're after us anyway. And um, they just I got onto a list, and and I think we all get that. And so like you said before, there's so much noise and so much information. You know how, how you know if I'm a development director sitting in the seat and I'm listening to this conversation. Conversation, you know, where do I begin in making those radical connections? And I know that, you know, at Changing Our World, we've had a lot of experience doing that.
2: I think the thing yeah. to frame up is that it's the difference between trans- transactional and relational, you know, and sure. for a long time, the not- many nonprofits have been transactional, and I get it. It was the way to do it. But what we know is that they're relational, and, and, and what we came up with is the term radical connection. I think Simon S- Sinek really created a lot of buzz X number of years ago when he talked about you know, tribes and and how people understand and why they buy things, you know, from companies. And it has a lot to do with seeing themselves, the same value yeah. shared. And I think that, that, it, and I'll let Nick, because I, Nathan got a great point of view on this as well. But I think the ability as he was talking about earlier to know more about a person so that you can more effectively say, communicate how, what some of the great programs that you're running as a nonprofit versus just a traditional headline, if we do really good work, it's being able to be, you know, the three of us have three different interest areas, you know, but but care a lot about the same things, but maybe would be more, uh, it would find it more appealing if we understood a different program or a different aspect or something on those lines. And that's the point of I'm the development director that you asked me, Jim, to, to Nathan's point, it's a bit risky, but believe it or not, we believe you will have more success by actually going deeper with the core folks that are radically connected versus trying to get more. And it's, a, it's an interesting dilemma when I think many of us have been trained in the industry to get more to Nathan's point, go get everybody to give you a dollar type of mentality.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I'll only, I'll take a step back too, because I, you know, this competition for connection that Brian talked about, most organizations don't realize how real that is, you know? So, first you need to create some understanding of how every person's comp- connection is being harvested by every company out there and they don't want your affiliation they don't want your association they want your connection at this point you know so so nonprofits are competing at a completely different level than they ever have before i mean number of emails and number of you know personalized type solicitations and also with that any person's connection ability to connect is a limited resource i can't have a visceral connection to a thousand different organizations. I mean, there's a very small, we don't, we haven't done the math or survey how many, but it's, it's pretty small. So the message really is actually very freeing to Brian's point. Like this is really flipping the pyramid and getting away from this idea that more is better, but better is better. And, and, you know, we, we have this hypothesis and we've been able to show this in our deep learning analysis that if you can predict people or assess people based on their depth of connection, not based on their wealth and not based on just last visits or last interactions, but they're true, like a more holistic depth, those people will stay with you much longer. So they're real. I mean, to the point that and this is not new news, but a donor that stays with an organization, if I stay with an organization over time, the value, my lifetime value is 15 times greater than a person that an organization, they send me an, a piece of mail and I give one donation. So 15 times greater. So the freeing part of this for us, I think, is really, and Jim, you saw this at the conference and some of the response. It's like stop trying to just acquire more people at any cost because those people aren't created equal. Start and understand who your population of people who do care, and really build this deep two-way kind of visceral kind of relationship. And in, in nonprofit, we talk about it being partnership. Whenever we want money, we talk about partnership, but then we forget about that word right after we get the money, you know. And and so, so it really is this opportunity to Brian's point of like, go within, go deep, go within, invest the resources and the time to get to know people in a really deep way that they're going to stay with you. Cause the ROI proves itself. I mean, it's, it's so much higher than this constant, you know, cyclical thing of just acquiring, acquiring, acquiring.
2: And, and Jim, last thing I'll, I'll say on this topic is the July Chronicle of philanthropy was the whole article Um, The whole magazine publication, excuse me, was focused on this very topic, and I thought there was a wonderful example of uh, a woman who was a major gift officer at the Houston Food Bank who went in with the mindset of developing radical connections with those that were in her portfolio. And she did so. And the results spoke for them speak for themselves. And I think from, again, back to your question, what what, what do I make of this? If I'm a development director, you, you have a, you have a phenomenal case study, right? Just in the last in July's Chronicle to take a look at.
1: And that's been a topic I've seen literally in the last weeks, Not a new concept, but in the last months or weeks, and maybe it started with that the Chronicle issue, and maybe I'm just like you know you buy a red car and then you see all the red cars on the road, but I see a lot more people talking about. The trying to avoid get out of the rat race of just acquiring more, but like going deeper and communicating in ways. And this goes true for corporations and for nonprofits. I mean, it's like people want to do business with or give to organizations that get them, that know them, that that you feel like you're going to go the distance with. And that's a, it's a big difference in how you from a philosophical perspective or a cultural perspective of your organization, how you align your organization to want to go deep with fewer people than just more surface level with more people.
0: And, you know, because we are advancing our church and and a lot of our audience is, is religious communities or pastors or maybe foundations or development directors, you know, we have, I think, a unique opportunity. Would you agree? And and we do each week maybe to go deeper with the faithful with those relationships. And and it also goes back to why religion has always been perhaps the biggest share of the pie when we look at giving on, on an annual basis. But what advice would you offer to, uh, to maybe a religious leader who is kind of think, listening to this conversation and you know how do I pl- apply this to my own community my own parish
2: yeah I would say I mean it's gonna it's gonna sound uh potentially what's old is new again but 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 I, I you know I, I think it's for a pastor in particular I'll put that in my you know mine is a, a wonderful guy who who has a great pulse of the community a great sense of the community and, and he does yeah. and he gets that not not just because of what he does you know being himself and quote-unquote walk in the halls but but, I, you know, I also see him really understanding the community through through the lens of having great relationships with some of the key stakeholders, you know, some of the key folks that are involved in our, our case, both the parish and, and at the school level, for instance, and I think having a great, and, and, and at the end of the day, what is that? I mean, that's leadership, right? And people yeah. follow leaders, and they want to be associated with leaders, back to Nathan's point, and people will go, you know, the distance or stay with people who are who are true leaders in that sense. But I think great leaders seek the advice and counsel of others, and he, and he does that in, in, in spades.
1: Yeah, I I think we saw some great examples of this during COVID where churches, parishes were, were shut down, you know, and not prepared to deal with that. And there were some that just took to the streets. And they modeled, they started modeling generosity to everyone they knew. And I'll tell you, that was like some of the best stories I've heard through COVID are really just being the hands and feet of just going out and modeling that. And I I do think as we settle back into pre-COVID days, the risk is like going back to this idea of like, you give money, it's a bit more transactional, you don't really know where it goes, but this like this conversation around like making a difference. And and I I don't know, it just becomes more of a two-way conversation than just a transactional thing. I think people... more now people want to be involved I mean I see at least in a lot of evangelical churches where you know you give and then there's a pass- through and then the church will pass it through but but the person who gave the original gift doesn't get a feel of the impact it was the church that passed the money through to a local charity and, and I think there's an opportunity there i think it's an opportunity to I mean, and a responsibility, I think, for for any religious organization to model generosity in a very personal way, because it's not just about supporting the walls within, but it's about, you know, really being the hands and feet and really, you know, portraying what our Christian values of, you know, leaving this world a better place. We're not here just for ourselves. We're here to to make a difference and love all those that are around us. And there's a Arthur Brooks, who Brian mentioned, had a, a New York Times quote that said, you know, we're facing a crisis of love. And, but, you know, of course, Brian and I were like, well, then here's the antidote, because literally the term philanthropy means for the love of mankind. So don't have to go very far. The answer is literally staring at us. We know what the recipe is for success. It's just literally, you know, showing love through the kindness and generosity and whether that's volunteering or giving money or whatever it might be. And and from a religious perspective, the greatest opportunity to do that, because that's what they're called to do. That's what, you know, we're all called to do and be that living proof of generosity every day.
0: Well, I couldn't have said it better, Nathan. Just to kind of, as we draw our conversation to a close, I can only imagine that with the economy that we're currently in and the hiking inflation and and the rest, I would imagine that the the demand for this book or the timing of this book couldn't be better. Are you seeing that? What kind of feedback are you receiving now just on some of the preliminary press and, and uh, feedback about the book?
1: For me, it's funny. I think we've gotten past some of the skeptics. I mean, there are people within the industry. No, It's like, you know, Voldemort, like you don't, nobody, you don't say it. We just know it exists, but you just don't, don't say, say his name. Right. Like how dare you write a book called The Generosity Crisis? You know, we don't, we don't know if we're in one. And and we we admit that in the book that this, this area requires more study and research, but we do know that the trends are not promising in, in terms of no matter which data you look at in terms of the percentage of households that give. But with that said, this conversation's it's been a never really been in vogue until now. And I think it was to the article Brian was mentioning, you know, the giving crisis in the Chronicle of philanthropy kind of broke the story, if you will. And I've seen a, a just a really incredible shift in just the industry and, and people's willingness to talk about the hard issues and admit that maybe it's not all as well in the Western front. And so mm-hmm. time will tell, but, you know, at the end of the day, we, we hope that this book you know, inspires people to look within at their own generosity in whatever form and fashion that takes, but also to think about their own personal responsibility to those around them that they influence and and hopefully, you know, inspire and spark some conversation. So far, so good, I think, Brian.
2: Yeah, I would say, unfortunately, Jim, the book might be well-timed. And I, I say that honestly, because for many of the points you talked about, you know, the, the, the economy and, the, you know, there's some even early analysis and some thoughts that you know will or will not the next few months the end of this year be as robust as giving you know has always traditionally been at the last 2 to 3 months of the year and so uh, is there some concern around that so i unfortunately i think it's well timed um but i as nathan said i think i i think the book is actually a, a, a book of hope to be honest with you even though the name might give you something different i do think there's something happening with the redefining of what is philanthropy what is generosity and just because in, uh, the Indiana School of Philanthropy, you know, tracks tr- traditional giving and that is under, you know, going the wrong way. There's no doubt about that. You know, there's crowdfunding. There's there's as Nathan said, there's acts of generosity in the, every day and right in front of us. And so but that doesn't help necessarily the nonprofit whose budget is reliant on, on you know, whether, so that is a very real thing. And I just think that the book, I hope not only starts the conversation, but as Dr. Susan Raymond would always would often say in the halls of changing our world, that famous quote about Wayne Gretzky, you know, why why are you such a great hockey player? And he said, I didn't skate where the puck was, I skated to where the puck's going to be. And mm-hmm. I think that I hope the book also helps more nonprofits begin to think about where are they going, and and is the model of philanthropy the fundraising model that whether they're direct mail or not, or whether they're major gifts or not, like are they just having an honest look about what will help them move forward? And I think a lot of the answers lie in understanding, you know, some of the things we've talked about today—the branding, communications, values-oriented communicating to those that will want to be communicated with. I mean, rethinking a lot of maybe the strategies I hope is also a byproduct of what grows out from here. Because as yeah. I said to Nathan not too long ago, I would love nothing more than for us to have to ditch the name because quite frankly, generosity comes roaring back. That would be not, that would that'd be simply amazing, you know, just to see that happen as well. Yeah.
0: What a great byproduct and what a great ending to our conversation today. The book is called The Generosity Crisis: The Case for Radical Connection to Solve Humanity's Greatest Challenges. I'm gonna leave links in the show notes of this episode for our listeners to click on and and reserve your copy. It's coming out this month. Thank you, Brian Crimmins. Thank you, Nathan Chappelle, for being on Advancing Our Church. And thanks for really introducing this conversation for all of us so that we can really raise our awareness and sharpen our our strategies and and address this crisis together.
1: Thanks so much, Jim. Thanks so much, Jim.
0: I want to thank Brian Crimmins and Nathan Chappelle for joining us today. I'll leave links in the show notes to Brian and Nathan and their new book, The Generosity Crisis. Once again, Brian, Nathan, thank you again for joining us here on Advancing Our Church and for this great conversation today. Thanks for all you do to advance the mission of our church. Well, that's our show this week. Special thanks to Pottery Studios for another great show. And if you'd like to help our show, please leave us a rating wherever you downloaded this podcast. And if this is your first time listening to Advancing Our Church, I hope you'll stick around and subscribe because you can find us on all places where you download your favorite podcasts. You can find us on YouTube. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And for more information about our show, please visit us at advancingourchurch.com. Advancing Our Church is a production of Changing Our World, and we are a fundraising and social impact consulting firm that has been advising both nonprofits and corporations for more than two decades. For more information, please visit us at changingourworld.com. Well, that's it for me, everybody. I hope you have a terrific week. Take care and God bless.